Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch-up, and then two main items of news, usually picked by myself and Eugene. First Making It Up. Wait, hold on a second. How am I going to even intro this? See, it's so much <laughs> harder when you're not there. First Making It Up. With Sharice in London and Eugene in Hong Kong. Yeah, you know, well, not the I first think, one. We've I done think it before. You misled a bunch of people into thinking. I don't think I did. Into thinking that this, you're leaving. You're like quitting making. Yeah, that there would be no making it up and no Sharice with making work in the future. And now people are going to listen to this episode and be like, oh my goodness, Sharice is still doing this. I didn't get replaced. Do you think it's because I wasn't clear enough in my caption? I think people don't really read. So it's not really on me. I don't think it's really on you. Okay. As long as it wasn't poor writing on my part, I, mean, I can live with people not reading. I mean, also I didn't clear, like not to say that I think our social media is so important, but like I did post, right? To say I was moving and I did not clarify whether I would be doing work with Megan. Like I just didn't think it was necessary. So I can understand why people might assume because I'm moving that I wouldn't be continuing my work. Yeah. So I really want to know how have the first few days in London been for you? Very cold. And <laughs> and on top of that, you've never been to London. Yes. I have never been to London, which even the immigration officer thought was strange. Because you're like, I'm moving to London? No, no, no. So I'm crossing and there's like a line just for international students. All right. So when you, probably because this time of year is a lot of international students coming through, the airport has a line of immigration that's just for international students. And I'm going through and then he's like, um, like giving me instructions, like, like specific instructions for my, for our scenario as international students. And then he's like, you've been to London before, right? I don't know what led him to say this, but he just says like, you've been to London before, right? And I'm like- Can you say it in a British accent, an English accent? No. Why? I'm not, I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Oh, anyways, continue. And then I say, no, actually I haven't. And he says, oh, well, it's going to be baptism by fire. And I was like, okay, thank you. The weather is better than I think people say about London. Though- uh, I I think it's going to wear on you though. But like, I'm not sweating, unlike in Hong Kong. Yeah, so I met up with Alec. Oh, yeah. Our, if, our if former guys... making apprentice from the summer who still does yeah. work with us. Um, and we had lunch and we were talking about, you know, being in London, et cetera. And he says that he loves Hong Kong weather. And I said, no, that's not true. <laughs> you don't. What mm. else about London? I guess it's... Mostly what I expected. How has the commute slash traveling around been or have you not really explored? I have. I've been on the train. I think it's quite, it's expensive. The train is expensive. My goodness. Yeah. I think that- Well, Hong Kong's also super cheap where you can go pretty much anywhere for under $2 US. Yeah. So that's not possible here. Like one, a trip anywhere is going to cost you like 240 pounds, at least from where I am. But the train system is quite easy to understand. Oh, This is the thing. This is the thing about London that is incredible that Hong Kong doesn't have. You do not have to use cash. Everywhere is contactless. You just use your mobile phone. Everybody is just using their mobile phone to like tap 
That's pretty incredible. Though also like it is somewhat, this is somewhat related to my topic. I can see how this would be dangerous, but also yeah. the convenience is remarkable. I'm curious, what, what was your first meal there? No, oh, I had pizza. You gave me grief for, I don't understand what you expect me to have while I'm in London. What is the most English dish that you wanted me to have? Is that a knock on British cuisine? There's nothing yeah. that yes, I think that signifies was a British cuisine. I think that was a knock on British cuisine. I'm sorry. I mean, besides fish and chips, is there anything? Oh man, I don't know. Like a uh, sausage roll. Yeah, sausage rolls. <laughs> Hamburgers. <laughs> Hamburgers for sure. I was told by an English guy in Hong Kong before I moved that they have a thing called a Sunday roast. I've heard of that. The last time I was with Tom of Breaks, he took me for a Sunday roast. Did but a really? bougie one. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll have to get him to do the same for me then. How's Hong Kong been? How are you guys holding the fort down? I'm trying to think what it was like. Well, I mean, I was gone Tuesday, Thursday, but overall it's fine. And I think the one thing that I'm starting to... Well, no, that's not true. I think that there's a realization internally on the spectrum of like... Let's just say left side is super analytical and super organized. And the right side is let's say very creative, very amorphous, very fluid. I, I'm starting to think to myself, different people within the team all fit along that spectrum in different places. But I feel everything left of center is missing. So like the people that are overly analytical, no, analytical is the wrong word. The people that are overly regimented. I have regimented, lost track of which side means what. Is left regimented? Left is regimented and then right is more fluid. Okay, got right? it. And whether it's an oversimplification perhaps, but it's like, you know, when you go and get shit done, sometimes you need to be somewhere within that because if you're too fluid, then you don't have the organization to get it done, right? Yeah. I, and I, I think I that like, I, I've always kind of subscribed to the fact, well, I wouldn't say always. Like I think some people have kind of drilled it into my head that there's a, there's a level of execution that often defines your success, right? Like you could be the most quote unquote creative person, however, which way you want to define that. But if you don't have the ability to adhere to deadlines, if you can't deliver stuff on time, it doesn't really matter. So for us, I think it's it's kind of understanding. And this is kind of like more of a management sort of insight. It's like, well, at what point do you try to force someone to be something they're not, aka super regimented? Mm -hmm. And at what point do you find support for them? It's obviously not really a knock on people in the team so much as like people work in different ways and sometimes you need help to do things you're not good at. And it makes more sense to have people focus on what they're good at rather than take on new skills. And I think that the thing you need to be weary of is sometimes you do want people to be learning consistently, right? But if they're not passionate about learning that skill, then maybe it doesn't really make a difference. Hmm. Well, I think sometimes also it's thinking about does this person need to learn this skill in order to better work with the team? Like, does the team need this? And this is the only way to go about it. Then in that situation, you would have to require someone to learn something new, to be more regimented or more fluid, whatever the need is. But if it's like, maybe this person is actually just not best for this task at hand then you give it to someone else. Yeah. So that's the one thing you're always going to need to kind of come to terms with as a, I don't know, as a manager. 
I'm always really fascinated by team building. Like how do you how do you find the right team to be brought together to achieve a certain goal, right? No, no, no. I think that ultimately what, what's going to be interesting is like team and like human capital are, are so critical for you to be successful. And sometimes people don't realize how important that is because I read that shoe dog thing and it's like one of his quotes that he always repeats is just about, it's not a direct quote so much as like, hey, give people the opportunity and let them surprise you. So I think that's 100% valid. And I've kind of lost that preciousness of having things needing to be done my way. I think you have, but I think obviously there's a balance, right? Between like not being precious about how things getting get done, but also having expectations that people need to meet. I mean, I think the one thing that I get the most annoyed at is commitment and and timelines. Yeah. Like I feel like if you, dude, if you're gonna if you're gonna say you're gonna do some shit, then fucking do it. Yeah. No, I agree. It's either you be honest about how much time it's gonna take you. Or you get it done when you said it, you were going to get it done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what it was? I think I think that maybe it was you leaving that was probably a revelation because I think arguably you actually occupy both sides of that spectrum quite well. Thank you. Well, you have to be. You're you're like you are your own entrepreneur in a way as a freelancer. Yeah. Plus, you need to obviously do creative shit. So I don't know if it's something that is learned or if it's a byproduct of the opportunities that you put yourself into. I actually think I'm almost at this point, I would say that I fall more on the left side than the right side. I think I utilize yeah. the right side when I need it. I mean, this is also part of why why I guess I'm going back to school is because I feel like my success these past three years has partially come from being really good at time management and you know evaluating what is needed for the clients right now and how to get things done like quickly efficiently right and then not and then the creative part it's not that i'm not creative but the creative part is more like utilized in service of falling within deadlines which is not a bad thing which a lot of people would say is a good thing but i'm not as free flow creative as some other people i've always felt as though i'm not maybe a visually creative person but i'm in many ways creative about linking things that maybe seemingly don't have a connection. And I don't know if I'm losing that as I get older so much as like I'm overwhelmed or I don't have the ability to like think in in different vectors. Well, isn't it about our brains that the the paths that we most frequently travel get easier to travel? The connections you make, if you keep making them, it gets easier to keep making those same connections. So it's actually, it is literally physically harder to make a new connection. You know what helps me and what I've kind of almost tripled down on as of late is like just reading more stuff. Like I almost feel if I don't read more things, I'm not subjected to more things, then yeah. I'm going to get stuck in these ways. And then that actually is probably the thing I'm most afraid of. Yeah. Which actually, I um, one last thing before I jump into it, I've been uh, reading this book called Hitmakers that actually is pretty solid. I'm only two chapters in. For me, the reason why I like it, it talks about what is virality? And it also talks about why it's so hard to distill what is viral and how there's no formula for it. Is it how does right. it secede in an age of distraction by Derek Thompson? Yeah. Hitmakers are signs of popularity in an age of distraction. What's interesting about it is that like, and the reason I want to bring this up because it tips into our first topic, which maybe we should just get into. Yeah, go for it. Right. And I can, I can kind of connect it. My topic that I picked this week is called authentically what? Obviously, that's a pretty vague topic. It 
It all stems from an event hosted by the Cleaver Quarterly, which is a pretty fascinating publication that talks about Chinese food in a varied context, which means it could be like culture. It could be actual food itself. It could be regional exclusive dishes. So it really runs the whole gamut. And I think there's a really interesting element within the publication that talks about identity. It's pretty cool. Have you heard of it before? No, I hadn't until you shared this in the briefing. I hadn't heard of the Cleaver Quarterly. Yeah, it's actually pretty dope. It's kind of like uh, Lucky Peach, but just Chinese food. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. That's exactly what I was going to say. And this was the opening quote they had. At home and abroad, Chinese food constantly evolves and adapts to new conditions, bridging every social and cultural divide on earth. How is Chinese food so malleable? What mechanisms formed the hyphenated Chinese cuisines around the world? And what culinary developments can we expect from our ever-shrinking planet? So they host an event called Happy Family Night Market in Brooklyn. And the Cleaver Quarterly hosted a roundtable mm-hmm. to basically talk about the concept of food authenticity and hybridity. Did I say that right? I think so. Like hybrid, hybrid hybridity. You could and just say- it was really interesting. Because I learned a lot from it and like I've actually read through the whole transcribed roundtable dialogue and it was really fascinating. The reason why I find it's why I found it so fascinating, first, there's a historical lesson around the Columbian Exchange, which happened 15th, 16th century and is kind of this intersection of European colonization and the widespread transfer of plants, animals, culture, human populations, technology, and ideas between the Americas and the old world. Yeah, it was really factual. Besides the panelists providing their unique anecdotal experiences, they were all really well-versed on the actual history of the movement of Chinese people and geographically, like you were saying, how things fell into place, right? And I really like that, knowing the mechanics behind some how something came into being. So that was pretty yeah. interesting. So there, there's that part and then... That to me is just fascinating because it's not so much that I'm Chinese and it's more so the 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 fact that Chinese food permeates so many corners of the globe. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, like especially probably compounded when I went to uh, Peru uh, earlier this year and I went and sort of ate a bunch of their food. And there's a lot of fusion food, but it's not really fusion in the traditional, well, traditional being like, quotation marks, in the uh, sort of culinary hybrid fusion, like, oh, this is sort of trendy. It's more that it's the reality of this exchange, right? So I found that really interesting. I don't think this topic was chosen also based on the narrow scope of Chinese food. But what is interesting is that it talks about authenticity and culture and relays back to that Hitmaker book because a Hitmaker book says that it's really difficult for you to kind of put a formula into what is going to be viral. And the reason why is because culture is so fluid and dynamic and things that are relevant today that form the basis of a viral trend are not necessarily things that are going to be successful in six months or in six years, right? So my question is beyond Chinese food, should we reevaluate what authenticity means in culture? Because in reality, there is no authenticity in culture. Culture itself should be embraced for the fact that it's so fluid. Okay, I did not read everything in the transcript. I I skimmed um, and read certain parts more thoroughly than others. 
But there is a moment where one of the panelists talks about chow chop sui. And he talks about how Chinese restaurants adapted the ingredients, like took the initiative to the, adapt the ingredients. They use button mushrooms instead of wood ear mushrooms. They use pig, uh, they use chicken breast instead of pig hearts and chicken gizzards. So they like found ways to make it more popular, right? And so on one hand, you could say that that's an chow chop sui, the American version is an inauthentic dish because it's not the way traditionally Chinese people have made it in China. But on the other hand, it was the Chinese chefs who made that decision to make this second version of it. And as a result of the conditions they were in. So how can you call that inauthentic? Because it was authentically made in that situation and like intentional choices. And it's also even deeper than that because in a lot of places like... You know, if you're an immigrant, sometimes you don't have access to the same job market as everyone else. Being a restaurateur or opening a laundromat are the only things available to you. So you have to kind of understand what the market desires and you have to modify yourself, make sure you can sustain a business. But I think beyond that, what I think is the most fascinating is that it's really making me question what is authenticity now because culture itself is never really going to be beyond having segments, historical segments. Like you can't really be reliant on the past as guidance for the future. Mm -hmm. Like you can't look too many generations in the past because I think it's always going to be one step after another, right? Where the previous step informs where the next step will go. And there's always going to be a trail there, but you can't expect you to jump forward like, you know, five steps. I think the question that comes to my mind when when we're talking about authenticity in any scope relevant to any people or culture is who is the person questioning the authenticity and why are they doing that? Because if it's a, to continue the food analogy, like let's say it's a New York Times food critic that goes to, a new Chinese restaurant and says that it's inauthentic or that it is authentic. What actually gives that critic the power to say that? And why is that the concern? Like, I think those are good questions to ask. And I think this applies beyond food as well. What is to be gained by questioning someone's authenticity in their craft? Ultimately, authenticity versus passion, maybe those are the two sort of competing things that sometimes it overlaps, sometimes it doesn't. And what I mean by that is I can I can lament that something's inauthentic because it's inauthentic to what I know. But then mm-hmm. even then, maybe what I know is inauthentic to what things were one generation before. Yeah. So it's super meta in that sense. And I, I think that I probably before used to be so hell-bent on things being quote-unquote authentic but maybe it's not really authentic to a cultural movement so much. Is it authentic to you as a person? These are both things that the panelists talk about, right? Like something can be authentic to a person, like you said, or something can be authentic to just a certain period in time or a certain group of people. And so like if we bring it a little back to something that I know we talk about a lot and that also our readers talk about is it's not accurate, it feels like, to say that sneaker culture now is inauthentic because it is what it is. It's authentic to the current generation. That's what they experience. 
you're only saying that it's unauthentic to your lived experience. Exactly. So that's why you have to be careful because I don't think it's helpful to a culture if you just shit on it because it's like not not what you grew up with. So I think that, you know, you kind of need to understand what that means. And I think it's I think it's really fascinating because there's going to be certain things that happen in culture that are going to shift the culture in a certain direction. And, you know, let's say hypothetically, there's some big regulatory thing and whatever reason, Instagram has to shut down. Like that will obviously change the way people interact for some time to come. And that will in itself define culture. So I think we need to almost reassess what is authenticity in culture. And I kind of wanted to use this Chinese food thing because I think Food authenticity is something that comes up quite often. There's a, a sort of a regional seed, like Chinese cuisine is like, oh, it's it's Shanghainese food, it's Cantonese food, it's whatever. And you know there's a, a regional seed that exists. Like, hey, well, however they make it in Hong Kong has to be the authentic way of doing it. Mm-hmm. But in reality, there's a lot of things that are on menus in Chinese restaurants in Hong Kong that are becoming increasingly rare. Yeah. Right? So that's something that needs to be considered. And... I think that whatever was taken away, like this panel discussion, I think touched upon a lot of things that you could easily replace food as the subject and put in something else and it would still be just as relevant. I think it's the the philosophy behind understanding culture and understanding the times we live in and where times are going because the past inherently doesn't really have as much bearing. It's almost as though if you really wanted to be super authentic, you would almost need to build out time period specific Chinese restaurants or restaurants in general. Like, oh, this is like a 1970s like Shanghainese restaurant and this is what they would would have served. Yeah, I, I think I don't want to not talk about this because it would be, it would feel like we avoided the subject, but I think people talk about authenticity in food when the chef does not match the cuisine that's being made. And there is a feeling like that makes it inauthentic because the chef is does not have the right heritage like or is not the right ethnicity to be making yeah. that food. And I think like based off of our discussion, what we're saying is that's not that doesn't have to be the case. The food can still be authentic to this chef. It's not authentic maybe to, you know, how Chinese people made Chinese food in China, but it's authentic to this non-Chinese person making the Chinese food. Um, like my question to you is this, when you go to a restaurant, are you going to a restaurant for the authenticity or are you going for good food? And those are mutually exclusive. I am going for good food, but I think, oh, I don't know how to phrase this well, but the authenticity question also links into an, an economic question, I guess, and also the support of different people. If you are looking for Chinese food, maybe there is value in seeking out Chinese restaurants opened by Chinese people. Not because that it's more authentic, but because you are preserving a subsect of that food. Please tell me if I'm wrong or not. I think it does make sense. Basically, authenticity, what it does yield is story. Right. Because there's a reason why. But I think that good food doesn't always need to have a story so much as, hey, I thought these two flavors would taste good and I'm inspired by this culture and this culture and I put them together. (sighs) Simply put. I think I'm kind of thinking about this because I saw this exchange on Twitter, which is a great place to go if you're looking for controversy um, about Naturally. this person I follow who's Thai. 
she's a Thai woman and she was saying, oh, I've seen a lot of my friends like raving about these hot Thai restaurants in California, I think like in SF. And she was saying- And like LA and I've been- and she was like, oh, or, or, or LA, I don't know which city, but she was like, oh, there's also lots of great Thai restaurants opened by Thai people that are like small establishments that it would also be cool if people went to. And she wasn't saying like the trendy restaurants, not that they are bad tasting, but she was saying, oh, it would also be dope if people supported the Thai food made by these Thai immigrants. I don't know what I'm driving at exactly. Can we support both? I think the reality of the situation is that as you look at those situations, the reason why one thrives and the other doesn't is probably in part due to the overarching running of a business. Like I would say the new restaurants, the new trendy ones mm. are much more well-marketed. In my eyes, I think it comes down more to that than it comes down to the fact that like people are against going to traditional Thai restaurants. They probably are. They're just not even aware. They don't even know. Exactly. It's kind of like, well, you know what? If I'm not looking for... Thai food, but my friend posted this really cool restaurant. Like yeah. that becomes their entry point. In closing, this is interesting because I can I can look back not even that long ago and just to wrap things up, like authenticity used to be so critical. And I think that authenticity is not really what I what I thought it was when I was, you know, a little bit younger. Authenticity is really about shit you feel comfortable, but I don't even know if that means anything either because Generally speaking, people are adverse to continually doing things they're uncomfortable doing, right? So what does authenticity to self even mean? Like I think culture in, in general, like the beauty of it is the fact that it's going to change whether you like it or not. Mm, my takeaway is to stop using the word authentic. <laughs> Should we move on? Yeah, I think I don't have anything to add. That wouldn't be something that I already said in some degree. My subject today is actually not new news. So we did talk about this on a previous episode of Making It Up, but I realized it was an episode that I did with Nathan and not with you. Interesting. So it was Interesting. episode 21. We first talked about the Chinese social credit system. And back then, 21 must have been maybe a year ago, approximately. It was more of a hypothetical thing. And now the... Chinese social credit system is very real and increasingly operational and affecting actual lives. So it's no longer mm -hmm. this hypothetical scenario. It's actually moved quite quickly from being this hypothetical black mirror dystopian fiction to being the real reality of, you know, soon to be 1.4 billion people in China. Um, to give you a breakdown, social credit in China is essentially a citizen score that everyone in China is going to get through an accumulation of factors. So those things include um, big data from the government, such as, you know, the score you got in university and high school and um, how many loans you have out and whether you have good credit, information like that, that, that also exists on each one of us, right? Like, yeah. Like we have in sense a intangible credit score as well. If you think about like your relationship with banks and the phone company, et cetera. But then that 
On top of that, it adds in smartphone apps. So it'll add in your behavior, maybe shopping or interacting with people on chat even, or how much time you spend playing video games. Like it's not totally clear what it, what is counted, but definitely yeah. like digital behavior. And then on top of that- I've been thinking a lot about this as of late and I have quite a few questions as to how it will all unfold. But I think there's an interesting parallel I'm drawing. Okay, let me finish explaining real quick still for people who don't know, but this has been pretty popular news. So I feel like anyone listening has some idea of what I'm talking about. And on top of that is added information from high-tech surveillance cameras throughout China that have body scanning, facial recognition, AI and geo-tracking. So essentially whatever you are doing online or in the physical world is being tracked by the Chinese government and then aggregated using not clear algorithms into a score out of 800 or 900 points. And then if you have a good score, you can get things like VIP treatment at hotels and airports or your kids can get into better schools. And then if you don't have a good score, it means you basically can't do anything. So that's it in essence. And the reason we're talking about this is uh, we saw this pretty cool ABC article that boiled down um, how the social credit system works when comparing two people. So they compared two specific individuals, a woman named Don Don and a man named Liu Hu, and showing how for Don Don, the social credit system has worked out very favorably and she is unopposed. And then for Liu Hu, it hasn't worked out and he is definitely opposed. Do you remember the Black Mirror episode on this? In 21, we also talked about this. It's called Nosedive. Is it, is it the same episode? Yeah, it's the same episode. And, oh, okay, and also, this yeah. is the one being like universally used in every news article. People are saying, oh, China's social credit system is like Black Mirror's nosedive episode. But it's true. It's true. So if you've seen this episode, it's about a woman who used to have really good credit. And then she has like this one poor interaction. And then from that moment on, everything goes downhill. And that is my main huge concern is, and also sure a lot of people's concerns is that the system is, the system can be great if it's favorable towards you, but you just have to do one thing wrong to then wind up on the wrong side of it. And there's no clear way of how you then go back. It doesn't seem realistic. For example, they give an example of how if you go grocery shopping and then you buy a lot of alcohol, that could be counted negatively against you. But what if you were buying alcohol for a party? Like there are just a lot of other outstanding circumstances that this doesn't account for. I mean, there's so many things I could say about why this is a bad idea, but that's just one of them that comes to mind. I've been discussing this with a few people over the last few days and some things come to mind that have other real world examples, whether or not they are one-to-one examples up for debate, right? But first and foremost, you look at a lot of second becoming first world countries, kind of like a China or an India and culture has instructed them to seek out favorable jobs. So what does that mean? Be a lawyer, be a doctor, et cetera. But what happens when all of a sudden you graduate hundred times the amount of doctors and lawyers. And you've kind of been tricked into believing that, hey, if you take this noble route of being a doctor or a lawyer, then you'll have 
high status, high income, et cetera. But what happens when there's just a massive supply of them? You're no longer promised everything that was supposed to come from having these types of uh, prestigious jobs, right? And you've basically exhausted yourself. Same thing goes here. It's like, what happens if you're living your life to maximize social credit only to realize that, hey, you know what? Despite you trying your hardest, you're still not ahead of the curve. Yeah. One thing that I'm, I think is probably the, the biggest one is that humans are not infallible in the sense that they're definitely subject to a lot of decision-making based on emotions. They can be pulled and pushed in different ways. Let's say, for example, somebody has inroads with the government and they want their milk powder to be the one that people buy. And all of a sudden, or they want their diapers to be the one that is something that generates more points. What does that mean? Yeah. Right? So I think there's a lot of interesting things that happen there because there's, I'm not saying that corruption is a guarantee, but you have to be careful because humans traditionally, humans have always been sort of emotional creatures. So you can't really just make decisions in a vacuum. Well, one of the main things I was thinking about is actually in a different direction where I was thinking about how in other societies, in more democratic societies than China, life is already set up that if you start out in a certain socioeconomic class, then you're you're at a disadvantage. And the the climb to get back to a position of comfort is much harder, right? That's how it works. Is that or I'm not saying this is how it should work. I'm just mean that this is how society has been set up. Is that if you start out poor, it's much harder for you to get a leg up. Even if you are smart and hardworking, things are just slanted against you. And so I just feel that the social credit system is ingraining that as well. If you're poor, of course, you're going to default on a loan, but you need the loan for things that are, you know, your lived reality perhaps of like needing a car to get to work or needing to pay for your kid's um, education. And you could say perhaps in China's favor, like the machine somehow will be right more often than in a democratic society where these decisions are made by individual people, right? Like the individual person at the bank who approves a loan or the individual like credit card operator. I guess the romantic part of me feels like when you have a person involved, there's still a chance for making an exception. Like there's still a chance for understanding the background of why this happened to this person. And then when you leave it to the algorithm and you leave it to supposedly this like super technology, there is no chance of that. You you can't explain why you did the things that you did. I'm, I'm curious how it's all going to play out. But it's, it's also interesting because this isn't meant to be sort of an Eastern world versus Western world battle of philosophies. But you yeah. do recognize that some people are under the pretense that if I don't do anything wrong, then and it's going to benefit me. That to me is not really what the argument at hand is. It's fascinating to see what's going to happen when, you know, you you play everything by the book and you still don't end up succeeding. Well, I think uh, I think part of me and it's not really an East v West thing because this is very much a China thing, right? Like we don't see this being recreated in anywhere else right now except for China because of the unique situation China finds itself in, where it it has the technology, like it's able to do this, and then also they see an issue with the fact that their open borders could cause what they consider to be chaos. I have been trying to think about the other way to see this. And 
part of me. Can I, can I, can I jump in real quick? Yeah, go for I it. I heard a really great quote where if you look at the differences between China and the U.S., the U.S. fights incredibly hard to protect itself from enemies on the outside or who they deem to be enemies on the outside, whereas China does the reverse and they fight incredibly hard to ensure that enemies on the inside are taken care of. Yeah, that's a good quote. Yeah, it was someone I met over the weekend and I thought I was like, oh, that's a that's pretty well put. I think it was Stanley who was showing me just yesterday that was it like 15 out of 100 Chinese students were able to recognize that Tiananmen man in front of the tank photo? I, I could mm-hmm. have gotten that stat wrong, but something approximately like that. Like only 15% of university students could recognize the Tiananmen massacre photo that like it's indicative of, you know, what China is doing. I'm I'm making this hand motion because I'm trying to suggest that it's like insular, like it's cordoning off its own people. And then the part of me that's trying to like understand why this is happening is that if you have so many people, you have 1.4 billion people, the second that something happens, it's big, right? Like the second something goes off the rails, it, Mm -hmm. it, it would be, it would totally shake up the entire country. Not to say that I agree with them, but just just trying to provide the other side of the argument. The reality of the situation is there aren't very many proven examples of how to create a harmonious society for 1.4 billion people. Yeah. With several different types of cultures. Well, there's a lot of different types of cultures and ethnicities in China. It's easy to see governance at a, a smaller scale in mono what's the right word in monoculture societies like Sweden for example like everyone loves to look at Scandinavia as a great way of creating governance but it's so much easier when everyone is kind of similar well China's just too big isn't it yeah it's massive it definitely strikes me as being too big to have one governing system it's so depressing to think about I think immediately if this was to be implemented in your daily life how would you react to it like, what's your gut reaction of how, how your life would change? I would be a lot more careful of what I publish on social media. I think that's the thing that would affect me because I think in a lot of other things I do, I like on paper, in terms of my money spending and taxes, whatever, et cetera, I think I have a fine score. But so the example that ABC provides is of this man who... Pub, who's a journalist and he published about um, corruption in the government. And yeah, then, he published a lot of stuff like whistleblower stuff. Yeah, and then he got penalized. And I haven't published anything exactly like that, but I can imagine myself in that situation. I think that's what strikes the closest, right? I mean, even on this podcast, like we say not necessarily positive things about China. What's interesting is that I mean, ultimately, I'm not out to like shit in anyone's like parade. I think it's just like a matter of like understanding the situation at hand because there are a lot of things that are done incredibly well in China. And that's not for me just to like backtrack and kind of provide myself an out, but it's like there's been a lot of sacrifice that people have undergone to achieve that. And, you know, same person I talked to um, over the weekend, he's like a, a British guy and sometimes he gets a bit of flack because he seems as though he's in support of China. And it's not really that because 
he's really just looking at it from the perspective of reality and pragmatism, right? There's no doubt that anywhere you go, like everyone can say, oh, I don't like living here. And, you know, I'm sure in six months, you'll probably come to a conclusion of the things you don't like about living in London, right? There's no perfection anywhere. And I think that, but having the ability to kind of understand all sides of the spectrum inherently allows you to potentially improve your situation. What is scary in this situation is that you're putting an enormous amount of trust into once we, well, once again, what we said, like people that are susceptible to emotion, susceptible to a lot of things, and you have to trust them that they're going to act on your behalf and make the best decisions. Okay. So China does not have a great track record when it comes to their treatment of dissenters. So it's very much like if you are a model citizen, then sure, China China will treat you well. But if there's anything up about you that is out of line in terms of religion or politics or, you know, your lifestyle, then you're out. Like that's, there's no way around it, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm not, not understanding why they do what they do, but there's no way I can see this as a thing to be excited about. And for me, it's a more personal lived reality than it is for you because I am only a Hong Kong citizen. Yeah, exactly. When 2047 rolls around, like I'm as susceptible. I'm not even that old then. I'll be, you know, mid fifties. It could, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but my choices in the next 20 years could actually affect me in a real way. That's the biggest thing that I don't think people... Understand, or maybe that's what the disdain around expats are. It's like you can come here and you can leave. You can always leave mm-hmm. versus some people that don't have that opportunity. It's not that I have a disdain. It's just that it's more real for me. If you give up your citizenship, yeah. then I will. Then I would see you in the same boat. And if I gave up mine in in whatever situation, like I would be real about that too. I chose to make an out of this. Like I didn't yeah. stick around. I mean, I didn't stick around right now, right? Like not because I don't want to be a part of the social credit system, but I also made it. I'm sitting here conscious in London decision. because I made a conscious decision to get out of the city. Anything else you want to add? No, it was really good to talk to you. Now I'm just going to be sentimental every time we record. Yeah, it's only been like less than a week. Yeah. Five days. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's only been like four days. It's Saturday at 6.52 p.m. right now. Kind of want to get out of here. Uh, yeah, no, you should. You should. Thanks for coming in. That's yeah. a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Megan, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Megan.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. One thing... I forgot to mention, I should have mentioned it at the beginning, was I got an email from, I think it was Dan of Trapital. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was really cool. So Dan does this really cool, I think it's once a week newsletter called Trapital. And it's really fascinating because it's on the intersection of business and music. Yeah. And in one of the previous making briefings, Alec wrote a piece that analyzed his insights into the difference between booking an arena 
tour or a stadium tour. Obviously, stadiums are much larger, sometimes two, three, four times the capacity. And how you're able to make more money basically doing less shows. But what was interesting was, and when I posted it on my own Instagram, I actually got a lot of feedback because people were curious about the merchandise side. Mm. And you know, based on the comments Alec made, Dan had emailed and he had made some other comments. And I think it was just interesting. It'd be cool to see what comes of that. Yeah, I agree. I guess back to the outro. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, you can always DM at Macon on Instagram and we do see all of those. Or you can directly email us at Eugene at Macon or Sharice at Macon.com. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>